I'm Kiri. And I'm Amy, and you are listening to The Perks of Being a Book Lover, a show hosted by two book nerd friends who talk to other book nerds, including authors, poets, librarians, booksellers, and regular readers. Our show follows this format. We begin with my crabby dullness and Amy's sometimes maddening enthusiasm, although not today. It took us a little bit of time to become self-aware and recognize that we embody the grumpy sunshine trope that we often see in literature. That is followed by a fun conversation with a new bookish friend about what they love about being a bookworm. Then we talk about what we're reading, and finally, we put our guest in the hot seat to answer some silly probing questions. We're glad you've joined us. One of our guests from this past summer, Kate Wickers, introduced us to the work of British nonfiction writer Ben Aitken. His books are funny, intelligent, poignant, and we're thrilled he agreed to speak with us from his home in London. We chatted with him about his many books, particularly The Marmalade Diaries, which was just published in the U.S. in June. Ben is funny in that understated way that Americans like us find charming. The Marmalade Diaries, the true story of an odd couple, follows Ben's experience being a millennial lodger with an 80-year-old widow as COVID shut everything down in 2020. But we also cover his various travel books, including The Grand Tour and A Chip Shop in Poznan. And just a reminder to listeners that Give for Good Louisville is coming up on Thursday, September 15th, and Forward Radio is part of that. There are some cool donor challenges this year that you can learn about at giveforgoodlouisville.org. But first, Amy is a little tired and cranky. I am a little tired and cranky, but for a good reason. I had a wonderful, fun weekend in Chicago with my husband. We did a getaway weekend And we just got back literally 15 minutes before this. And I've been in the car for a while and I still have a lot of stuff I need to do this evening. And I'm a little bit cranky, which is not the norm for me generally when we're recording these things. I know. It's it's like we're doing a switcheroo. Yeah, I know. (laughs) (laughs) But we were there in Chicago, actually. My husband is a big sci-fi fantasy reader, and he had always wanted to attend a Worldcon conference where um, they have like the Hugo Award ceremonies and everything. So because it was fairly close in Chicago, he decided to go this year. I tagged along and it was a lot of fun. I did go to a few panel discussions and things, but I didn't go to a huge number. I just love Chicago. We uh, we found a restaurant we loved so much that we ate there twice oh, wow. while we were there. We did a Chinatown food walking tour. Uh, that was really cool. And today we did a um, architectural boat ride down the Chicago River with a history person. That was what my weekend was like. You there did you not go. go to the Cats in Science Fiction and Fantasy discussion, which... No, I did not. I'm a little sad because I would have liked to have heard about that, but that's okay. That's okay. I was (laughs) just trying to live vicariously through you. I know. I would have, except for it did seem like all the sessions that I wanted to go to were at the same time. Mm. So there was one that was actually about podcasting that I thought would be interesting. I wanted to hear from other podcasters. So I ended up going to that instead. So I'm sorry about the cats. And That's all right. The cats and I'll get over it. I watched the last episode of Sandman, which was all about cats, or at least the first part of the last episode uh, was about cats. So I got a cat fix this weekend. It's okay. Well, that's good. Chris is worried that, you know, they might turn him away from the world con because we have not finished Sandman yet, Mm. you know, and I think it's like one of those required things that you see (laughs) that you watch if you go. Uh, So we're almost done. We just have one or two episodes left. Have you read any of the books? Uh, the comics? No, but my husband did. Like, we've got all of them. He was into Neil Gaiman before Neil Gaiman was what he is now. So he read them, and I think one of my boys might have started them. But no, I, I've never gone back that far into Neil Gaiman's backlist, I guess. Something funny that I heard them say maybe it was at this conference this weekend that you can't seem to have any kind of fantasy TV show without British accents. Have you noticed this? You know, Game of Thrones, The Witcher, the uh, Lord of the Rings, you have to have a British accent. It's like 
it's like required. It makes everything better. And, and and we got to listen to Ben's lovely accent when he spoke to us. He had to listen to Yeehaw talking to me, but uh, <laughs> it was a treat to talk to him. Let's let's talk to Ben. Ben Aiken in London. You're about uh, six hours ahead of us, five hours ahead of us. So this is around dinner time for you. Yeah, I'm currently halfway through a bowl of spaghetti bolognese. I hope that's okay. Totally <laughs> fine. It's lunchtime over here. So I just shoved some cheese cubes and uh, chips into my mouth. So your meal sounds much better than mine. So thanks uh, again for interrupting your dinner time to, to chat with us. Absolutely no problem at all. Fascinated by cheese cubes. Are they like ice cubes but made of cheese <laughs> or I've never heard of them? Really? Well, for those of us who are too lazy to buy a block of cheese and actually cut it into cubes ourselves, you can buy them pre-cubed and they're just in a little um, resealable bag. Because Americans are ultimately <laughs> lazy. Efficient. We will buy everything pre-done for us if we can. Yeah, that's efficiency. It gives you more time to get on with things that you truly enjoy, like <laughs> mowing the lawn, playing that's, golf, that's fishing. Right. I don't know. That's right. Well, let's talk about your writing life. So we, we do a little background on our guest. And so we learned that one of your first forays into writing was as a playwright. Uh, you had a play called Cafe that was performed in London, and then your books seemed to become more travel related. So was being a writer something that you always wanted to do, or was it an accident? More an accident than something I wanted to do. Yeah, I wanted to be a professional golfer growing up. I was only interested in sport. I wasn't very academic or studious. The first book I read was Bridget Jones's diary when I was 19 and yet somehow I was admitted onto an English literature degree at university. I was good at watching the movies and then sort of regurgitating the plots so I found myself at university studying literature. First year was an absolute disaster because you couldn't get away with watching the films. I got a letter from the principal saying uh, either you're hopeless or not interested. Either way maybe you should reconsider what you're up to and at that point, I actually started to read the books and I was lucky enough to fall in love with the subject. What made you choose English literature as a focus to begin with if that wasn't something that initially interested you? That's a good question. <laughs> <laughs> that's, the, that's the million dollar question right there. <laughs> it, it's because I was desperate to leave my hometown, which was Portsmouth on the south coast of England in the county of Hampshire and I was desperate to get away no disrespect to Portsmouth but getting to London was the primary motivation I didn't care what I had to study to get out of town and my grades in English literature always seemed to be the better than anything else and that's probably because you can't be proven wrong you know uh, <laughs> as easily as in maths or physics or whatever so that was, yeah, my, my chief concern was uh, skipping town and having the social experience of university. And I was fortunate to actually grow into my subject and fall in love with books and the world of literature and continued educating myself, did a master's program. And that's when I first fiddled with uh, plays and dialogue when I should have been writing a, an essay. And that was my first foray into creative writing. And that led to a play called J and C which was basically two characters trying to understand who they are you know uh, sometimes in creative writing courses they say you need to understand your characters before you write the first line of a book or whatever you need to know them inside and out and so I didn't know these characters inside and out one was a grave digger and one was a tax man and I thought as an exercise I'll just have them having a chat with each other on the page. So I'm learning about them, but also practicing dialogue. And that became 50 pages. That became a play. At the time, I'd never read Waiting for Godot. So I mm. thought I was being a creative, original, <laughs> audacious genius. But in fact, <laughs> no, I wasn't. I was actually uh, unwittingly derivative. <laughs> but that led to the cafe, which was about yeah one day set in a cafe. It was taking the political situation nationally and condensing it into a cafe. And then, as you say, I moved on to travel books. 
So was it travel? You know, you just happened to take a trip and then decided, hey, this would be a kind of a cool thing to write about? I think it was uh, struggling to write this third play. And all the while I was writing these things, by the way, it's probably worth mentioning I had another job. I was working as a carer or a physical assistant to a, a lad who has cerebral palsy. So the writing on the side was a hobby at this stage. And I think it's, it's quite telling when you do something for nothing. It mm. tells you that you're actually passionate. It's a compulsion. It's something you genuinely enjoy rather than you do to yield a wage or whatever. So I was writing a third play, really struggling with it. It was going to be about unemployment and a job centre and the research just kept on going and going and there was no story. So I abandoned that and picked up Bill Bryson's Notes from a Small Island, which was his travel book. Bill Bryson being that uh, gorgeous, preeminent nonfiction guru. And he wrote a book, lovely book about traveling in the UK back in 1995 called Notes from a Small Island. And I picked it up, read it and immediately wanted to retrace that journey not with a book in mind, just for amusement, for diversion. So I went to the same hotel, same cafe, spent the same amount of time in the bath, <laughs> visited the same amount of Chinese restaurants, which was 17 in total. <laughs> I don't know how he fit through the door on the, on when he got back home. I really don't. Um, and that led to uh, yeah a blog, which led to, okay, should I write a book? Should I try to write a book? And that's how I sort of segued from playwriting to travel writing it was a happy accident and I realized that if you could combine two loves traveling and writing all the better so Bill Bryson is one of my favorite writers and so when I saw that you had sort of done a, a recreation of his trip from notes from a small island I was thrilled but you know you were talking about he's sort of the um you know non-fiction guru what is it about his books that you enjoy I think principally it's because he's from Des Moines I think that's <laughs> his chief and unique selling point no I, I what is it about Bill is he is he as uh, popular on that side of the pond as he is in the UK because he really is um, a bit of a national treasure over here because he's American but he's lived in the UK for fair chunk of his life but he's as popular and successful in the states is he 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 is yeah he he's very popular here um even though he obviously yes moved to britain but then he came back for a while and i think now he's moved back to britain again and he doesn't always have particularly kind things to say about his american roots you know he's always just a little bit snarky but i think that's kind of what i like about him um but yeah no he's very he's very popular here that's good to know. I um, What is it about him that I like? I think it's that kind of balance or combination of being scholarly and lighthearted, mm -hmm. that mixture of being sort of eminent and erudite, but also foolish and silly, <laughs> whilst writing all the while clearly and in a way that is accessible and inviting rather than stiff and awkward and verbose that I think it's something about that special combination which he seems to do effortlessly but probably is very very hard indeed and perhaps there have been countless hundreds of suitors and imitators of Bill Bryson like sometimes my travel writing is compared to Bill Bryson and I sort of scream silently when that happens because you're bound to suffer by comparison and consciously I'm not trying to parody a favourite author of mine but perhaps subconsciously it's inevitable that you do at some level but that said it I didn't help myself by retracing one of his books and calling it Dear Bill Bryson did I? <laughs> <laughs> well, I love his travel books but I also love the books that he writes about sort of things that normally could be an extremely dull read like he did one about Shakespeare and Shakespeare's life which is it's a topic that Carrie's very interested in but not necessarily one that I'm very interested in but that book about Shakespeare was so funny and entertaining I would never ever probably read a book about Shakespeare otherwise no. 
No, who, who would have thought that Shakespeare could be entertaining? <laughs> uh, your point about him being able to write about anything, I think, is a, a very good one. He could write 200 pages about cats and plastic bags and publish it, and you'd still, it would still be good value because he's just got this way of unveiling things and illuminating things, and the prose is always sort of delicious and seductive and... Yeah, he's curious beyond sort of measurement, and that's a winning combination. Let, let's talk a little bit about your most recent travel book, which is The Grand Tour. And that came out in 2020, and I really enjoyed it for a couple reasons. One, I just, I like older people, and I, I like to travel. And so this book is about several different tours that you did with older adults, and, and one of those older adults was your grandmother, the thing is, though, that combination of older adults and travel doesn't necessarily feel like something most 30-somethings would find appealing as a holiday. So the, the first question that came to my mind was, although now that you said that you were a carer and that was your full-time profession, but without knowing that, I, I thought, did somebody dare you to go on those trips? So why did that seem like something that you wanted to write about? I was a carer for a lad my own age we met at university so that wasn't an introduction to an older generation that sort of made me aware of their brilliance and and value so that wasn't a connection but what was a connection I think I've always got on well with my grandparents I've enjoyed chewing the fat with them at their house and even going to their friends houses and I just felt that every time I entered some uh, the house of somebody over 70. I think I was primed from a young age to see and sense the value in people of an older generation. But that wasn't conscious. So when my dad went on a holiday and came back and told me that he'd had four nights away in a nice coastal, charming hotel, place called Scarborough, and full English breakfast in the morning, three-course dinner in the evening, four pints of craft lager every evening, games of bingo, entertainment, excursions to a national park. And the whole thing, including travel, was a hundred pounds or about a hundred US dollars. I just thought, are you taking the biscuit? I mean <laughs> I could live on such a holiday and save money. <laughs> compared to what I was paying to rent a room, a tiny room in London. So initially I went on that first coach holiday just for a good, cheap, affordable holiday. When I was there, keeping a diary as I tend to do, I thought there might be some sort of book in this because I was I was having a terrific time and the holiday was less about the place I was visiting and more about the people. So this travel book came out of those six coach holidays, the Grand Tour. I think its focus is as much on the people I'm, I'm with and I met as the places I visited. So when I was 18, my mom was around 53. We went on a bus tour. So we're in Kentucky and we went on a bus tour to New York City. And I was by far the youngest person. My mom was the, the next youngest person. And I have wonderful memories of it now. But at the time, I was really a little bit baffled by some of the things that, you know, the music and the woman who led the tour, every time we would enter a new state, she would, no matter what time it was, get on the mic and like holler state, you know, like Ohio, salute. And then, you know, Pennsylvania, salute. You know, and of course I was 18. So, and there's a big difference between 18 and, and in your 30s. But were there things that when you were on these tours that you just found a little bit baffling because of the age difference? I think actually I've met that woman that you just alluded <laughs> to. She was on no baffling. I think the bingo, I mentioned bingo just a minute ago, uh, but bingo was a big source of bafflement initially I thought what is this sport why was I not introduced to it earlier the first time I played I was genuinely perplexed and struggling to keep up with the caller and crossing off the numbers I didn't re realize they were the numbers were organized so they were in rows according to their whether in their 20s or I was looking all over the anyway I got up to speed and realized I was actually quite good at bingo 
quite talented naturally and I won on my on the first evening the first evening in Scarborough I won bingo and you can imagine the looks on the faces <laughs> of the the older generation who've been playing for years and never won and I turn up this whippersnapper and win 60 pounds and as I go up to collect my prize I'm pretty sure one guy deliberately shoved his walking stick in my path <laughs> But bingo is a game that initially baffled me, but I've grown to love. That's one thing. I think the way that cups of tea, the way they are revered to such an impressive extent, it's a focal point, it's a goal, it's an achievement, a bunch of things. I've, I've never placed so much value in a hot beverage. That was interesting. <laughs> Dancing every evening without fail or consideration of alternatives they would be up on the dance floor bopping i think that might be to do with growing up in the 50s 60s mm. you know when those those first rock bands were coming through and there was rhythm and blues and there was rock and roll and that that was one of maybe a dozen ways of amusing yourself and these days we've got a plethora a panoply mm. like an impossible buffet of diversions and ways of amusing ourselves so i think the dancing is a more a shared generational pastime compared to my generation mm -hmm. but really it was uh, the characters and the, their own idiosyncrasies that amused me and struck me for example i met one guy and this was in the middle of winter and he only ever had shorts on <laughs> even in the snow or the sleet he'd be wearing these shorts and one evening i plucked up the courage to go and ask him you know what is it about these shorts and he admitted that he's not worn anything but shorts for about 80 years and I said oh, why is that <laughs> and he looked at me as if no, he'd never been asked the question before <laughs> and finally said I just find them easier to put on <laughs> and there was a kind of philosophy in mm. that attitude I'm not sure what type or kind of philosophy. But yeah, that amused me. And I met another guy and um, we were talking about his late wife. He'd lost her. And I said, I'm really sorry to hear about your loss. And he said, ah, oh, it's all right. She's in Toot Boot. And I said, what do you mean? She's in, in she's in Toot Boot. She's in the boot of his car, his wife. And <laughs> he keeps the ashes of his late wife in the boot of his car and then when he gets somewhere he thinks she would like he scatters <gasps> a, a bit of her there like that, a bit like in that film the way with martin sheen yeah. have you seen that he no. does the, no. the pilgrimage in north spain the santiago de compostela and he does this pilgrimage and he's got the ashes of his his sons who died on that pilgrimage and he scatters a bit of him there and a bit of him here and so I, I met that chap uh, and I thought, what a way to mourn a person. Mm. And I think these little learnings, these little teachings, they were curious, but also very well appreciated. Well, in your most recent book, The Marmalade Diaries, it's about the year that you spent living with Winnie, who is an 85-year-old woman who is recently widowed. And you mentioned the Share and Care Home Share program in your acknowledgements. So what is that program? And did you get to meet Winnie before she and you both agreed to try this home share? Yeah, uh, I didn't get to meet her. There were a series of Zoom calls. Because yeah, there was definitely a vetting process. I wasn't aware that I was up against about 10 other candidates at the time when I was applying to, to be Winnie's lodger. Uh, but yeah, there was some there was some serious vetting going on, as you can imagine, and that's quite reasonable, isn't it? But there wasn't, incidentally, any vetting of Winnie. You know, that, <laughs> and now I'm on this side of the whole experience. Looking back, I think they need to start vetting the older members of this of this <laughs> dynamic. No, she she's an absolute uh, cracker. And I remember the first time I, I met her was the day I was moving in, and uh, I knocked on the door nervously. Uh, and the son answered and introduced himself, and we did a little fist bump, which was all the rage back then during <laughs> the, the height of the pandemic. And 
I offered my fist to be bumped by Winnie and she just sort of looked at it and shuffled past me and said, I'm going to check on the bins. <laughs> and that was her way of introducing herself. And she, she was no more cordial than that for about two months. But gradually, you know, we, we got to know each other and became good friends. And we had the, the pandemic, the lockdown to get through together. And that experience, that unlikely friendship in unlikely times forms the foundation of that book, The Marmalade Diaries. So I guess we should say the premise of your book is you telling the story about how you become a lodger with Winnie. And then within a week of you uh, beginning your stay with her, everything locks down in Britain because of COVID. So then you and she are stuck together for the next year. Yeah, we were essentially a married couple without the passion or (laughs) consent. Um, I really did consider jumping ship a week into it because I didn't sign up for that degree of intensity and I also thought I could be of use to my own grandparents and my own parents back in Portsmouth Uh, at that point when he was still a stranger to me but I just thought in the end it would be really harsh to do that and she'd not have a lodger and it would put the family in a difficult situation so we stuck it out and it was the best of times the worst of times Um, it's hard enough living with a new person at the best of times it's when that person is 85 grieving there's a lockdown yeah it was a recipe for disaster and there were definitely were some disastrous moments but there were also some delightful moments some 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 great times and we we got through it and this program i think you have similar in the states it's called home sharing over here mm-hmm. and basically you're placing somebody that's got a more space than they might need they might have a spare bedroom placing that person with somebody that could do with slightly cheaper rents i was paying 150 pounds a month to live with winnie rather than probably a thousand pounds a month oh my which gosh. would be the going rate in london and so you're meeting two sets of needs. The, the older person might, you know, be wanting company or could do with a bit of help around the house. And the idea is that the younger person offers 10 hours a week uh, of assistance or company. You're not a carer if they need formal care that has to be arranged separately. So, yeah, 10 hours a week of support company in my case it was 10 hours a day because (laughs) and she was demanding and I couldn't leave the house anyway Uh, so yeah it was my circumstances were quite unique but I do encourage people to consider this program if they're looking for a place to stay somewhere or they're starting to feel that they could do with someone around the house someone conscientious someone mindful someone that could pull up the weeds or cook a stew or whatever. So, you know, it's impossible to know, but how do you think the lockdown changed the relationship that you had with Winnie? What do you anticipate or what do you think it would have been like had the lockdown not happened? It would have been more easygoing. I think if life had been continuing normally, whatever normally is, but I wouldn't have been as present. I would have been hopefully as committed and as useful to to Winnie, but I wouldn't have been as present because I would have been living my life. What the lockdown allowed for was this intensity and it enabled us to talk more. We had three meals a day together and it was over breakfast in particular that we did lots of chatting. So the book gets its title, The Marmalade Diaries, from Winnie's breakfast habit of having marmalade on toast every single morning she makes her own marmalade has been doing so since she was about seven and it was over marmalade on toast that we would sort of talk about current affairs and what was appearing in the garden and her life and the book becomes in its own way a sort of biography but not of a superstar not of a celebrity not of someone that's excelled on the world stage just an ordinary ordinarily brilliant and difficult and complex person so it's a diary it's about the pandemic yes but at heart it's about a friendship and it's about one person's life 
At what point did you decide that you thought that this could be a book? And, and how did you approach Winnie about that? I think I realized it could be a book about two weeks after it was published. I was, you know, I was <laughs> full of doubt up until that point. My publisher at the time asked what my next travel book was going to be. And I wondered if they were joking because, of course, I couldn't really travel anywhere and I couldn't just write about nipping up to the local convenience store and back. That's not travel. Um, (laughs) But I said, yes, I'm living with this interesting character. I'm keeping a diary. Would you like to see a bit? They wanted to see a bit. They liked what they saw. And the next hurdle was, you know, to ask for Winnie's consent and she couldn't give her monkeys. Uh, She was like, yes, yes, dear, do what you want. Just change my name. Of course, when you're writing nonfiction, you've always got this tricky landscape to navigate, and that's wanting to be 100% honest and genuine and candid, but also having to be respectful and discreet and such. So that's how we ended up with a book. Yeah, and she's always been supportive of the project, uh, slash completely uninterested. And I believe she she was the first person to submit a review on Amazon. She gave it two stars and said it was shocking. (laughs) Which is a bit rich when you consider she's the central character. (laughs) Your book touches on a number of pretty big topics, including relaxation, grief, and motherhood. And Winnie, as we've mentioned, uh, she had been widowed for less than a year when you moved in with her. What is something that you learned about grief from watching her? Or did you? Hmm. Grief is a slippery one, a tricky one. If I could step backwards quickly uh, to the Grand Tour, I was on a coach holiday in Italy and got speaking to somebody that had lost their husband and she was asking me about my life, how I was feeling as a 34-year-old being a millennial and I said, oh, I had various sort of frustrations and I felt a little bit uh, fed up and uh, struggled to be sort of vibrant and full of life and vim and she said you know what you need you know you need some grief in your life and I said mm-hmm. what are you talking about well you're going to push me down the stairs or something <laughs> and she meant I needed perspective and yeah. grief is a horrible blessing and in the sense that it provides perspective it's torturous because you miss the thing that you're grieving and you can't have it back but it might change your relationship with the world around you. Um, I guess I'm clutching at straws there. I'm hoping that there is some gift and dividend of going through these horrible things. When it comes to Winnie, is that the case? Hmm. It's hard to say. She didn't find it easy to let go of her late husband, Henry. Nothing was sort of moved or disturbed or got rid of all of his shoes still lined the staircase, all of his coats hung on the pegs. The first few weeks I lived with Winnie, each evening she would set the breakfast table for the following morning and she'd put out uh, settings for both her and Henry and she wasn't embarrassed about doing so. I was reminded of Queen Victoria uh, who Mm. in the 1800s after the death of Prince Albert used to lay out his clothes for the next day every evening for the rest of her life. It's not something that you get over quickly. That's what I've learned about grief. And I've also learned it's different for every single person. And there's no right way of coping. There's no right way of responding. You could jump into a new relationship. You could distract yourself with hobbies and friends. You could try and sit with the feeling and process it. Who, who knows? And I don't think you can learn about grief prematurely. I don't think you can mm-hmm. actually take anything away from the example of others. I think it's largely useless and ineffective to try and do that. I think you've just got to wait and see what happens when it happens to you. It's a tricky one. Do you have any thoughts? You know, I agree with you. Every relationship is different too. So how you process your grief for one person is going to be different than how you process your grief for somebody else, depending on the relationship. So there's, I guess there's too many variables, but I, I do agree that, that it does give you a different perspective. Now, whether that perspective is positive or not is dependent, but I do think it, it gives you moments of truth about life. My 
granddad, my, my first grandparent to die, died about six months ago. And mm. it, is, it is grief, but it doesn't compare to the grief of my grandmother mm. because a huge thing has been t- taken away from her life. Whereas I saw my granddad maybe once every two weeks, once a month. I was used to his absence mm-hmm. in a mm-hmm. physical sense. My grandmother wasn't. At the funeral, I had to read a poem by Tennyson, and the sentiment of this poem was basically, may there be no sadness in my farewell. That was my grandfather's dying mm-hmm. wish. May there be no sadness in my farewell. And it's, it's one thing to say, it's a much harder thing to put into practice. But that person that's passed would hate the idea of you living in sadness because of their passing. They would want you to, without guilt, go on with your life and feel as much richness and and happiness and contentment and excitement and silliness as you possibly can. Again, harder to do than than say, but that's a consoling sentiment that I've taken from my granddad's passing. All of my grandparents died by the time I was 18, and my husband's uh, grandfather lived until my husband was in his late 40s. I mean, I loved his grandfather. And I think part of that is because I didn't I didn't get to have a grandparent as an adult. I always told my husband, you were so fortunate to have your grandfather, not, not just in, in, in your teens or when you were a child, but into your adulthood. No, you, you're absolutely that's right. And that's, that's why I feel privileged to have gone on holiday with my nan, Janet, on one of the coach holidays in, in the Grand Tour because we, we spoke and we talked in a way that we wouldn't normally. When I mm-hmm. visit my nan, the spotlight tends to be on me, the visiting grandchild. She wants to know how I'm getting on at work, yeah, how I'm getting on at college, how my girlfriend is, how my boyfriend is, whatever. The focus is on the grandchild. Rarely does the grandchild have the maturity or the willingness or appetite to turn that spotlight around and ask their, interview their grandparents. Mm-hmm. And what happened when I went on holiday to Wales with my nan, we had so much time over meals, sat watching the sea, walking along the high street, just chewing the fat. And I was able to truly understand who she was as a as a person. And mm-hmm. I understood her childhood. And I came to see that the full thing, the whole package. And by the end of the holiday, I was calling her Janet because Janet was the real deal, the whole thing, rather than... Nan, which is just a role that she she took on when I came to be, you know, mm-hmm. whereas Janet is the whole thing. And, um, yeah, it was interesting. Somebody asked me what my favourite thing about that holiday was. And I said, you know, it's been my nan. It's been getting to know her. And they laughed. And I said, what are you laughing about? And they said, well, I asked your nan the same question. What was your favourite thing about the holiday? And she said it was the chicken lasagna the other night. <laughs> <laughs> so that takes us back to perspective. You know what you... Well, I think this is a perfect segue into humor, and you do a really nice job of blending humor with poignancy. You don't poke fun, and yet you aren't overly precious about it all. So talk to us a little bit about your writing process and how you are able to hit that sweet spot. Well, for a start, I don't think I am hitting a sweet spot. I'm not conscious of having ever hit a sweet spot, and I never try to be funny. That might not sound credible, but... I believe it to be true. I have a sense of humour and I just share that in my writing. And I, obviously that sense of humour is inherent and present in my observations and my diaries that I keep when I'm watching the world, when I'm engaging with people. I am obviously demonstrating that sense of humour, which is different to attempting to be funny and attempting to amuse. I think they are different things. I think it's when you try to amuse, that's your goal. I think you're more liable to slipping up and it not working out. I think if the the humour is sort of just it's just gentle and it's not front and centre, it's just a, a feature of the writing, a feature of the, the narrator, a feature of the personality. And a lot of the time the humour comes from the other people. It's paying mm. attention to their sense of humour and just getting out of the way and, and putting that forward. So when it comes to humour and writing... I try not to think about it at all. I try to just let it be instinctive and let the book take on 
whatever humour is in the characters it sort of documents. I'll tell you one of the things that I found humorous in the book is that Winnie freezes everything <laughs> and she pulls things out of her freezer that have been there for 20 or 30 years because I suspect that maybe she, I think we all have probably had a grandparent or somebody that we know that's like this, that lived through the depression or hard economic times and they want to w waste nothing to the point that it's a little crazy. Uh, so I found Winnie's habit of freezing everything and then wanting to pull things things out of her freezer and possibly eat it, even though it's covered in three inches of freezer burn probably by that point, was quite humorous. Yeah, she's got everything in that deep freeze, including her late mother-in-law. I wouldn't be surprised <laughs> if she's down there under the ratatouille and the, the cod fillets. I wouldn't be surprised. Yeah, it's remarkable. There's portions of cottage pie labelled 1962, and you cannot... <laughs> You cannot persuade her to throw anything away. She is a remarkable hoarder. She thinks it will come in useful, maybe as a building material one day. But yeah, so certain certain scenarios are, are, are funny and amusing. And, and she is a funny person. She's a witty person. She'd say things that were very so amusing and quotable and not always publishable. But uh, on the matter of rosé wine, she said, Rosé wine strikes me as nothing but the outcome of indecision. Yeah, that, was her, <laughs> that was her take on rosé wine. And she wasn't trying to be funny. And I'm not trying to be funny by reporting that. But there, there, there is humour in that house and in that person and hopefully in that book. So what's next for you? Are, are you working on something? Marmalade Diaries just came out, I think, this summer in the United States. So are you thinking ahead now to what's next? Yeah, the Marmalade Diaries came out in the States in June. There's a huge picture of me on the back cover, unfortunately. <laughs> According to Barnes & Noble, that is proving a deterrent to customers. Um, <laughs> that I'm no longer living with Winnie, so I'm back on the market. So if there are any octogenarians in the United States that need a somewhat conscientious, somewhat useful, you know, millennial to do odd jobs around the house, mm -hmm. let me know. I'm on Twitter. I'm on Snapchat. Unfortunately, they're not. Unfortunately, they're not. <laughs> Write me a letter. There we go. I'm working on a new book now. It's all about fun, F-U-N, what the hell it is, whether we get enough of it, what it does mm -hmm. to our brain, how it's changed historically, how it differs, differs from culture to culture. But the bulk of the book, having done the research, is me trying to have as much fun as possible. So I've been doing jumping out of aeroplanes. I've been on a cruise recently, just got back. So a bit like the Grand Tour. This was the Grand Tour at sea. I was the youngest person on this cruise by about 106 years. <laughs> that was good. Uh, yeah, lots of different things. And uh, it's a consideration of fun. Again, it's a yeah, lighthearted book, which whose silliness probably disguises uh, a serious element. And that's, you know, we can't go on living with stress and anxiety mm. and preoccupations. We do need levity in our lives. We do need diversions. And I think we can always be sort of signposted to different ways of having fun. Well, I will look forward to reading that when it comes out. Well, I think now is a good time for us to take a little break. And when we come back, we're going to talk about what we're reading. We are back with Carrie and also with our guest, Ben Aitken, who is the author of The Marmalade Diaries, and we're here to discuss what we've been reading. So Carrie, you better share something good. I try to read as many Newbery Award-winning books as I can. I teach middle school, so I, I sort of like to stay on top of that. And so I picked up The Last Quintista by Donna Barba Higuera. And I had no reference point for this book. I had zero idea what it was about. The only thing that sold me on it, and the reason I picked it up, is because it did win a Newbery Medal. I really enjoyed it because it is sci-fi, which I wasn't really expecting. So it's the story of Petra, who's a young girl. She has to leave Earth because of a comet that is going to destroy the planet. And she longs to become a storyteller like her abuela, 
her grandmother, but she's destined to become a botanist because that's what the new planet will need in terms of education and terraforming or whatever it is they're going to do. Once she's aboard the ship, she and the other crew, and, and these are families, so her parents are scientists and her brother is on the ship with her. Uh, and there's, you know, hundreds, probably thousands of people. Several ships have gone out, but they are put into this sleep for hundreds of years. And when she wakes up, she finds that there's been this rogue group of crew members that have changed the plans for the sleepers and therefore for the entire remaining civilization of humans. And it's been in this effort to create a utopia. And I think if you've read any books about utopias, you kind of have an idea that "Mm, things aren't going to end up all nice and tied up in a pretty bow. So the story follows Petra as she is figuring out how she fits into this new society. These crew members that have created this new utopian enterprise, they kind of treat Petra and some of the other children as almost robots. You know, they're, they're expendable. So it brings up a lot of interesting issues, you know, sci-fi related, but also about family. The plot is a little bit complicated, so I won't go into it too much. But if you have a middle school reader, if you're a teacher, if you're a parent, I would recommend it. uh, And especially if you like sci-fi. So I I think I gave it four or five stars. The Last Quintista by Donna Barba Higuera. Ben, what have you been reading over there in London? Recently, I've been reading... As it happens, I've been reading The Grand Tour. Yeah, I only read, I only read my own stuff. See, yeah, I don't look beyond my own oeuvre. It's a bit like, no, I'm not reading my own stuff. God, no. I'm reading a book called Hello, Stranger by a chap called Will Buckingham. And it's about strangers connecting and whether mm. we're good at it or whether we're bad at it. And it traces the roots of this issue, this problem, And there's always been, according to the author, this tussle between xenophobia, which is a fear of strangers, and philoxenia, which is a love of what's strange and strangers. And we're constantly sort of having to wrestle those two instincts, those two impulses. And when there's third parties that enter the fray, and that could be the media, for example, that could be uh, whatever, um, it may, muddies the waters further. So really interesting, because I'm writing this book about fun, as I said, and one chapter is going to be about a bench that I sit on every day um, nearby my house. And whenever somebody sits on the same bench or the one next to me, I deliberately, and to their disappointment, start a conversation. <laughs> and it's not easy. I often don't want to do it because, again, there's this wrestling between a love of what's strange and a dread of what's strange. And that's why I'm reading the book, because, um, yeah, it appealed to me on that level. So that's Hello, Stranger by Will Buckingham. That sounds good. Do you consider yourself an introvert or an extrovert? Uh, Wednesdays, Fridays and Sundays. (laughs) I'm not one thing consistently. Like if I'm in the mood, I can feel really extroverted. And then other days, I, goodness me, I, I, I don't even want to talk to myself. But all, all things considered, somewhere in the middle. All right. Well, Amy, have you been knocking out some books on your TBR? This was a book that was not on my TBR. I saw it on, I don't know, it was like on sale, I think. <laughs> I saw that it was on sale and the title intrigued me and I was really curious what it is. It's also a, a, a children's book called... Ban This Book by Alan Gratz. And it's for children probably ages eight and up. And it is a book that I'm in the middle of. And I don't usually talk about a book that I haven't finished. But in this case, I'm just really excited uh, about this one. So I'm going to go ahead and talk about it. Uh, I picked it up with the book banning and removing books from libraries that's going on in the US right now. It was something that it's just way too common. And so it's a topic that really makes me angry, makes my blood boil. So I guess I wanted to see what this fictional book was about and how it would handle the subject when talking to kids about why books are disappearing from their bookshelves. Uh, so this book starts with our main character. Her name is Amy Ann, and she heads to her school library to check out her favorite book of all time, which is from the mixed up files of Mrs. Basil E. Frankweiler by E.L. Konigsberg. 
And when she goes to the shelf, it isn't there. And the librarian, Mrs. Jones, Amy wants to keep this book out all the time. So Mrs. Jones has made this rule that Amy has to check out a book in between checking out the mixed up files of Mrs. Basely and Frank Weiler. So it's time that Amy can check the book out again. When she goes to the shelf, it's not there. And so she wonders if someone else has checked out this book. And when she asks Mrs. Jones about it, the librarian says that a parent complained about this book and, and several others on a list. And so they've asked the school board to take them off the library shelves. So while Mrs. Jones thinks that this is complete nonsense, she has to comply. So Amy Anne's parents buy her a copy of the book and other kids start asking her if they can borrow it because if the book is banned from their school it must mean that it's a pretty darn good book for a kid to read it'll be really juicy and interesting and so her friend Daniel has a copy of one of the other books that's also been taken off the shelves and Amy Ann wants to borrow it for the same reason. So over time, Amy Ann and her friends collect all the books not allowed in the library, and they start a little banned book library in her school locker where kids can check out these books because everybody wants to read them now. It's made all these books super popular. Other parents come to the school board with even more books that they want taken away so this banned book library and Amy Ann's locker continues to grow and more and more kids want to read the books. So she devises this checkout system and concurrently she also has to do a school project on the amendments in the Constitution and what they mean, like the freedom of the press and the freedom of free speech. Amy Ann decides to fight back using her new librarian skills and her constitutional rights to ask questions like who has the right to decide what she and her classmates can read. So I'm about 50% of the way through this. I can't wait to see what happens. I think this is a thoughtful and fun way to present the pitfalls of removing books to kids. So the author, Alan Gratz, has written about 17 novels for young readers. Most of them seem to be more on the action adventure side. So this one seems a little outside his usual genre. So I'm guessing that he has a lot of feelings on this topic as do I but I did see where he has a new one coming out in October called two degrees and that one revolves around climate change hmm. so maybe he's just trying to help kids process some of these hot button issues that are out right now but I'm wondering Ben is book banning something that you hear a lot about in Britain or is it just in the U.S. because all weird things happen in the U.S. Uh, no I've not heard of books being banned here it might be happening of course the culture wars they do drift across the atlantic and involve the people of europe as well uh, so i know that we're in a, a different climate now where there's increased sensitivity and we're more watchful and cautious and circumspect about opinions sentiments portrayals but the actual banning of books no i'm not conscious of it happening here well that's a good thing well, Amy, I wish had I known that you were going to talk about a book that talks about constitutional rights, I would have talked about the book, but I'm reading about the Constitution. We should have planned this better. We're going to take another quick break. When we come back, we're going to put Ben in the hot seat and ask him his three in the third degree. We're back with Ben Aiken, who is the author of The Marmalade Diaries, and we're going to ask him some very probing questions now. So number one, if you had a warning label, what would yours say? A bit like aspirin or paracetamol, I think it would say must be taken with food. <laughs> Does that mean that we have to take you to a restaurant if we meet you? Yeah, put some food in front of me. And then I might talk more. <laughs> I, might I think that's good yeah. advice for anybody, right? Yeah. I'll I mean, talk more too if you give me food. Exactly. That's true. <laughs> so you wrote a book about moving to Poland and working in a fish and chip shop titled A Chip Shop in Poznan. And so I have to ask where the idea to do that book came from and what was your favorite food in Poland? I'm not sure fish and chips were your favorite food because you were working in a fish and chip shop. The idea came to me, like all good ideas do, when I was in the sauna. I thought, <laughs> I've got to move to Poland. Because at the time, the referendum on Britain's membership of the European Union was mm. just around the corner. The relationship between 
Britain and Poland was topical. The Polish people weren't getting a very good press. It was largely negative. And so I wanted to be a bit contrary and go the wrong direction and have a look at the country and hopefully celebrate the people. So I ended up in a town called Poznan. I went there because it was the cheapest flight with Ryanair, which is a budget airline. And I ended up getting a job in a fish and chip shop because the owner believed that miraculously I would just have this sort of inherent ability to <laughs> prepare fish and chips for vast amounts of people, which of course is nonsense. I was useless. Cue, you know, disaster, mishap. When it comes to the food, pierogi is the sort of number one thing in Poland. It's dumplings. I don't think they're that great, but you criticize pierogi at your peril. It, you speak to a Polish person and they ask you about pierogi. And if you say, yeah, I'm not, I wasn't quite sure. They'll be like, well, did you have this flavor? And you'd be like, no, I didn't. And they're like, there you go. That's what you want. <laughs> if you say, no, I did have that flavor. And I was still underwhelmed by it. They'd be like, yeah, but who made it? Was it my grandmother? And I'd be like, <laughs> no, it wasn't your grandmother. So you can never lay a glove on pierogi. They've always got a way of taking it out of harm's way and protecting its reputation. But my favorite thing, my favorite food was a, a, a national stew called bigos, which is cabbage, fresh and sour cabbage, and about 19 different types of meat, including elk and dinosaur. And it must be <laughs> for about six weeks uh, by somebody else, probably a Polish grandmother who might be dead. Yeah, bigos is my favorite Polish dish. You know, it's funny about the pierogies. So I went to a, uh, a university in the state of Pennsylvania and my husband and I went to college together and his roommate was from a Polish American family. And during American football games, they would come up for the weekend, uh, something that we do here called tailgating. Maybe they do something like that over in England for uh, soccer or well, football. your football, football. But his Polish grandmother would slave over pierogies, making the pierogies all week long, and then bring them up, prepare them there, and then feed all of us college students. And we absolutely loved it. But of course, it was free food, and we were eating the terrible food at the at the dorm. Uh, but hers were particularly yummy. But they, you know, they were pretty simple. It was just potatoes and cheese and onions. I think that were in yep. the filling, but. So if you were to give them a mark out of 10, Amy, P-O-D, yes. what would that yes. mark be? Oh, well, hers were probably an eight or a nine. Now you can buy them here frozen in the store and I would give those like a four or a five. Yeah. But I think it might be that grandmotherly love and mm. all the butter that she sauteed them in that made yeah. them extra yummy. Yeah, that'll be it. <laughs> <laughs> Okay, so your last question. You have written two books now about multi-generational relations, and you've spent time with so many older people in the process of writing those books. So we're wondering, as a millennial, how do you picture yourself as an older person? What kind of old codger do you aspire to be? And is that different from the old person you think you will actually be? Okay, so the old codger I aspire to be is, have you seen the film Benjamin Button. Yes. <laughs> so you know when Brad Pitt is at the end of his life and he's a really old man, but he's sexy as hell <laughs> and as wise as the Buddha because <laughs> he's, he's put in the years, but he's got, you know, the fight club body and you know, that gorgeous <laughs> face that Angelina, Angelina Jolie fell in love with. I would like to be that old codger. <laughs> yes. What type of old codger will I actually turn out to be? Probably Brad Pitt at the beginning of that film, <laughs> which is, yeah, looking like I'm 264 years old and I've got the common sense of a baby, you know, I think, yeah. You know, the older I get, the more I realize that that old adage that like youth is wasted on the young is kind of true. Like, that's absolutely right. You wish that it could go backwards. Like when you're old, you could have the body that you had when you were a teenager and all the wisdom that you have now. Mm -hmm. That would be so awesome. All I know is that I'm a grump now. I have been a grump since I was a child and I feel pretty confident I will be a grump. 40 years in the future, assuming I live that long. So. Well, I look forward to meeting you, Grumpy. 
Well, Ben Aiken, author of The Marmalade Diaries and lots of other great books, we really appreciate you taking time out. I hope you finished your your pasta. Now go have a a glass of wine and, and have a good rest of your night. Thank you so much. You can follow Ben Aiken on Instagram and Twitter at BenAiken85. For show notes for any episode, go to our website at www.perksofbeingabooklover.com. We're also on Instagram at Perks of Being a Book Lover Pod and on Facebook, Perks of Being a Book Lover. If you like what we're doing with the show, tell a friend. Word of mouth is one of the best ways to help people find us. Or leave us a review on your favorite podcast platform like Apple Podcasts and Spotify. Finally, a huge thank you to Forward Radio 106.5 FM, a grassroots community radio station in Louisville, Kentucky. You can find our show there, live or in archives, at forwardradio.org.